eggs for every breakfast every day. So pushing my cholesterol up what, through the roof. T- tell me, what do you what, have you changed? Oh, more butter. Oh, it's the, more the, butter. It's the, they're a vehicle for. <laughs> butter. I was always using butter, but now they're a vehicle for butter. Yeah. They'll keep cooking once you take them off the stove. People serve you this granulated mm. kind of egg, kind of like sand, which is not, it's just not scrambled eggs. Scram- scrambled eggs have just got to be... Simon Sharma says cook it in a saucepan. He says the great mistake everybody makes is cooking it in a frying pan. Oh, I've totally. never tried yeah. this. Uh, well, what, who, nobody cooks scrambled eggs in a saucepan. Frying pan, do they? You've got to cook it in a saucepan. What do you have with them? Do you have salt and pepper, obviously? Do you have... It's you. No wait, one. Wait, 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 wait. We're doing the Johnny Baker. Do you have red sauce, brown sauce, or no sauce yeah, at all? Yeah. What do you think I have? Red sauce, brown sauce, or no sauce at all with my scrambled eggs? What do you think? Well, I, have? I hope you don't have ketchup. I think you're a brown sauce kind of a man. I, I hope you might have Tabasco because that really cheers a man up in the morning. I'd love to think you have ketchup. I do have ketchup. Ah, <laughs> there's a fascinating, fascinating insight into my personal <laughs> No, there's nothing wrong with ketchup. It kept yeah. ketchup. There's nothing wrong you with it. You call it cat soup, then. I don't call it. I was just <laughs> saying cat's up just to be a twat. But, yeah. <laughs> um, I hope I hope you didn't catch that. Um, that I'm trying though, to I'm trying obviously. to I'm trying to speak slowly and carefully this week because last week apparently some listeners couldn't hear me talking. Oh dear, dear. But it, I think I think I think ketchup is. I mean, and also, can I say something? The point about ketchup is unjustly despised by a lot of people as being common, ridiculous. And Heinz, beyond any shadow of a doubt, delivers time and time again. I'm sorry it does. And I mean, I've made my own, and the boys quite like it, but they will always say, yeah, it's quite good, Dad, but it's not, it's not as good as Heinz. Yeah. I used to like tomato ketchup so much when I was a child that Father Christmas would bring me... Uh, the biggest industrial size vat of it that you could find every year. And I would have it sort of on everything. And the only reason I don't have it on everything now is because I know I'm an adult and I'm not allowed to. Uh, we could go for hours. We could, I mean, honestly. We could go. Uh, uh, thanks for coming, Sarah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, seem, I seem to be Detroit. <laughs> should we stop? So, we, so we, just stop now? we can talk about the spring in a minute. Can't we're we? going to talk about the spring in a minute. So we should just say at this point that because Corregidora is a book that deals with quite explicit themes to do with um, sexuality and abuse, that some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about in this episode is probably things, I don't know, you're probably quite forward-thinking in your child-rearing, but if you do have children around, you might want to send them out to play in the sandpit for the next uh, 45 minutes. Uh, so, so please carry on listening, but don't say we didn't warn you, there is quite strong adult content in this episode. Yes, I'll do. Nice hello, <coughs> hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in Happy's Bar, a blues club in a small Kentucky town. It's 1948, and a young, beautiful, distracted-looking woman has just taken the stage and is about to sing. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today for her third time as a guest on Backlisted. Please tell me that's a record. It's almost. Al- almost. almost. Uh, <laughs> Erica Wagner. Sarah <laughs> Church, Andrew Mayer, uh, Professor of American Literature and Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the School of Advanced Study in the University of London, and regular panellist on BBC's Question Time. <laughs> Press the red button Take now. Take that, Erica Wagner. Press the red button. <laughs> <laughs> Press the red button now to hear what we were hearing about behind the scenes <laughs> question time earlier. And as well as working as a critic, prize judge, TV and radio pundit, Sarah is also the author of books on Marilyn Monroe, F. Scott Fitzgerald 
And just out from Bloomsbury Publishing, this this brief pamphlet <laughs> called <laughs> Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream. Now, Sarah, I saw that when this book was commissioned, when you announced you were writing this book, that it was supposed to be like... Uh, 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 how long was it supposed to be? It was supposed to be about the length of The Great Gatsby. So, so <laughs> 45,000 words. About yeah. 45,000 words. And it's doubled that. So it's my little fat baby. And I love my little <laughs> fat baby. And nobody can call my baby fat. Um, it needed to be fed. So, uh, no, it turned out I, as, I was, as I was working on this history of the phrase America first, I discovered rather to my distress that I had undertaken without really thinking about it a history of the United States in the first half of the 20th century. And yeah. I kind of went out and I get myself into this mess. But yeah. so it took a little bit more length to explain to people what the background was, what the context was to make it all make sense. And did you start from a position of, what I'm interested with with this book is, did you start from a position of justifiable rage, <laughs> right? With what, what's happening in America, what's happening in the world. Was the rage enough to carry you through or did you discover stuff you didn't know about and therefore it became far more of a, process of discovery as you were writing it. Both of those things are true. So the the rage was absolutely propulsive. And um, I wrote the book very fast, much faster than I've ever written anything before. And I absolutely said that during the time. I was like, turns out rage really does drive you. But also I realized that although it felt like a labor of rage in that sense, it was also a labor of love. It is also a story about the America, I'm sorry to say, I still believe in. And the America, I still want to rediscover that, that value system that I still think is there. And, and then it was also true, as you say, that it was a process of discovery. So I was researching as I wrote, and I kept throwing up things that surprised me. And I kept thinking, well, you know, I already knew a little bit about this. And if they're surprising me, I think they might surprise other people as well. Yeah. And that keeps you going. I mean, I mean I've only, I only read the first first uh, sort of quarter but and it's, it's a lot less rage filled than I expected mm -hmm. in a way but it, you're doing your usual thing of taking an idea this idea of America first and and figuring out tra tracing the genealogy all about way back to the beginning and and why when the president of the United States tosses off a phrase I use my, my, my <laughs> the <correct> adva advisedly, <laughs> like America first, that's not so much a dog whistle. That's a full-blown poster with a swastika on it. It absolutely is. And it's certainly a dog whistle at the very least, but exactly. For people who are aware of it, it is, it's yeah, a blood okay. and soil kind of a slogan. And there are plenty of people who are still aware of that. So I'm also trying to get them dead to rights on that. Well, so when did you when did you hand when did you hand the manuscript in for this? How long? How quick did they turn it around? Uh, well, I only want to reveal this if the book gets good reviews because if the book is badly reviewed, they'll go, "Well, obviously she wrote this in a couple of months because it's a piece of crap." It has the, it has, it has the virtue of, uh, of, uh, of spontaneity. Yeah, exactly. But I will. So I'll tell the truth. No. So I um, I started writing it in June last year. This time last year, I had not started writing it. And um, I delivered it, it and desk. I delivered it at the end of November and Bloomsbury was amazing and they turned mm. it around incredibly fast with a wonderful editorial team. And um, yeah, the whole thing was done in less than 12 months and I researched and wrote it in about five months. Shame that I feel. Uh, well, you know. Well, but as I say, if I got it all wrong, everybody's going to go, well, that was <laughs> obvious. Jay, Jay. <laughs> but, um, Spend longer next time, Churchwell. <laughs> we, we, we dwell on it only because I think there will be uh, in the book that you're here to discuss today, Corrigidora by Gail Jones, which was first published in 1975, uh, an acquisition by a commissioning editor working at Random House called Tony Morrison. There are 
I guess, links with some of the themes, certainly Absolutely. the themes of, 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 of racism and of what America stands for in, and the, in that, and the civil rights struggle in that book. I just so. want to interject one other thing before we move on to the next thing, which is to say I did a quick straw poll yesterday mm. on Twitter, yeah. and this was re retweeted several times. So it probably got out to about 20,000 people altogether saying, who here has read Corregidora by Gail Jones? And in the space of 24 hours, two people yeah. came back to say they'd read it, okay? Yeah. And my, which was my instinct. My instinct was that it was not well known, even allowing for, as you say, the fact that it was it was edited by Tony Morrison. And what I want to say is finding that out, if anything, that makes me even more enthusiastic that we have the great good fortune to not have discovered this book, but to have the opportunity to talk about this book on the podcast. Yeah. Because the the thought that so many of you listening to this have the opportunity to discover this book and read this book it absolutely blew me away and it's totally what we're here for you know? uh, and it was a great choice of yours Sarah because I hadn't read it you hadn't read it I mean I never heard it neither of us had heard of Gail Jones or, or, or Corrigidora mm. and as you'll see we have plenty to yeah, say there is a lot uh, to say about it now I should say also and I have no idea what I don't speak Portuguese it is a Portuguese name Corrigidora well so Cor I was trained Corregidora. so I think we should just say it the way we say it all okay, of us fine. because I don't know that anybody knows so it's an anglicized version of it but I'm going to say Corregidora because that's what I'm used to saying and we can all, all say right. it the way we're comfortable I, with because it's anglicizing a, a Portuguese family name is the is the okay, title we should of the just story. to clarify for there's already been and some uh, Portuguese person debate. will come in and yeah, say yeah. this is the correct I, way to say this Looked, I went on the, online as I do. Okay. Pronunciation. Wiki, and they said Wiki, Yeah, they said they pronounced it soft G, but I'm, right. I'm not Portuguese. Well, it might even be Corregidora. I don't know. But anyway, Corregidora. But, but the, I think but in the, uh, Spanish it would the be. The Americanized version was always Corregidora. All I'm saying is I don't want to second guess the way I say it all the way through. So we'll just have a differentiation in Listeners, pronunciation. It's a name. We've, we've it's been, a name. It's a Portuguese name. We've been name. here before with Tuve Janssen, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, Tuve Ronald Duve. Let's never forget. Yeah. Uh, so, John, I believe you have a word from our sponsor. Uh, we do. We have a. a it's delightful uh, before we plunge into the darkness of mid-20th century Kentucky we must welcome back this episode sponsor Spoke an ultra cool online menswear company Spoke designed chinos with a difference ones that fit you and not the other way around they have a fit finder enter a few simple details and in a room, under a minute you'll have the perfect fit you can choose from almost 200 size combinations Something that interests me greatly as my size seems to fluctuate <laughs> these days with shocking sh irregularity. Spoke obsess over every single detail, fabric, lining, fastness to the wash. Ordering from Spoke is like going to your own tailor without the hassle or expense. With Spoke, you get sharp, personalised design delivered in just two working days. Well, I'm going to find this out because I put my first Spoke order in today. I discovered it's now summer. And my cords are of no use to me anymore. <laughs> so I need a lighter pair of trousers. And I'm I thought you, you just sold that to my husband. I mean, I'm yeah, I, I can know several good. people who will buy all Well, listen, that. if you're if you're listening, uh, Wyndham, uh, as a backlist <laughs> as a backlisted listener, and I know you will be, if you go to www.spoke-london.com and place an order, you'll get twenty pounds off your first order. You just put in the book the code backlisted twenty two zero backlisted two zero. Obviously, terms and condition apply, but uh, try it out. I have, of course, changed it to my summer outfit that I describe as Dirk Bogard in Death in Venice. <laughs> <laughs> the mascara is running down his face as we speak. Pre-death. Anyway, from sharp strides to mean streets. Yeah. Andy, oh, oh, what, what, have, what have you been reading this week? 
Well, last uh, time on the podcast, we talked about Alexander Barron's novel, The we Low did. Life. We did. And we mentioned in passing other novels about London that had been recommended to us by podcast listeners. Can I just say, everybody who was, who's been on Twitter this week, we've had a great, a, a lot of fantastic recommendations. And I, we discovered yes. a whole new website, the, the London Books website, which Absolutely. has got novels um, set in London. One of the books that we were that we'd been recommended, kind of in the Patrick Hamilton bracket, things like "Of Love and Hunger" by Julia McLaren Ross. But we'd also been recommended a novel by Roland Camberton called "Rain on the Pavement," and I thought I was sufficiently enthused by our discussion in the Low Life that I thought, you know what, before I lose that enthusiasm, before we move on to the next thing, I want to read "Rain on the Pavement." So I've been reading that. It's terrific. It's a sort of Jewish coming-of-age novel in the East End, Hackney, London. And it is really a lesser novel and more a series of short stories and pen portraits of a young lad growing up and from his early childhood through to adolescence and leaving home. It's plainly very autobiographical. Roland Camberton, real name Henry Cohen, only wrote two novels. The first was called Scamp. Uh, the second is this one, Rain on the Pavements. Never wrote anything of significance again, partly as far as we can work out, thanks to Ian Sinclair's sleuthing, because he fell in with a crowd of Soho habitués, including Julian McLaren Ross, and just, and just sort of drank himself boulevardier into the rest of his, his time away. <laughs> I like making boulevardier a verb. <laughs> yeah. That's fine, right? That's totally fine. I love it. And so... Um, if you are interested in novels about London or novels about the Jewish experience uh, in Britain, um, this is absolutely terrific. And certainly there are sections in here which, as Ian Sinclair says, you can see have strongly influenced his, um, what he would call his method, the idea that you would walk a street, you would walk an area, you would attempt to soak up to the best of your ability every shot, every person, every passerby, every house, every family, and then try and turn it into something lyrical. And um, what, what I call writing and what other, <laughs> yeah. other people call psychogeography. Yeah. yeah. But he, but, so I'm just going to read a little bit here. Um, the hero is called David, his best friend when he's a teenager, when he's about 15, he's called Stanley, and they've decided they're poets. And what they do is they leave the East End and on Friday nights and Saturday nights they travel to Soho and they sit in a Soho cafe called the Cafe Mirandella. How is it, when was it written? It's 19... I don't know. It's 51. Okay. So it's like Scamp is 50, this is 51. Okay. So it's Soho in 51 is yeah. what I'm picturing. Okay. It's be- and, and the descriptions of Soho are beautiful. I was going to read a bit, which is a description of Soho, but then I thought, oh, we've, kind of, we've done that before on the podcast with um, Absolute Beginners. So instead I'm going, to, I'm going to read a bit about David and Stanley and how they live as poets when they're 15 in Soho, because it really, it really made me smile. So here we go. David and Stanley made the Cafe Mirandella their headquarters and began to drop in, as they put it, whenever they were within three or four miles of Soho. So they travel, they specifically travel to a cafe in Soho where there's no one apart from them and one other old man. And they, they kind Drop of, in, they, they, they read one. So they, so they came almost every Saturday night. So that though they lived in neighbouring districts, a long bus ride was necessary in order to bring about such a chance meeting that they might, quote, run into each other at Mirandella's. 
The stale moribund cafe was brought to life by the entry of Stanley. The door opened and slammed to violently. Excited steps sounded over the wooden floorboards. Stanley flopped into the chair opposite David and stared deeply into vacancy. Chin on left hand, right leg sprawled out beyond the table. What's the matter, said David. Where have you been? Stanley said nothing. He had a taste for the dramatic and prolonged the silence and the posture. He seemed all right, however. His eyes shone with news and sensation rather than catastrophe. Got the cigarettes, said David, preparing to savour the situation in its appropriate Turkish aroma. Stanley brought out the packet with his right hand, leaving his position undisturbed and shook out a cigarette. There were only four left. What on earth have he been up to? Still using only one hand, he lit himself a cigarette too and finally looked at David with drooping eyes. Listen, he said. He recited several stanzas. <laughs> now I leave you and I kiss you. This night is over. I must wander slowly homeward by the river. I shall linger so in memory forever. David remained for some moments, as usual, with his ear cocked attentively towards Stanley. <laughs> I like it, said David. <laughs> said David finally. I made it up just now, said Stanley significantly. You mean yes. Stanley told David what had happened. He had been standing in the gallery queue for his customary Saturday afternoon visit to the theatre. A girl had been standing next to him. They had talked. They had sat next to each other in the gallery. Afterwards, they had had tea together. And after that, they had gone for a walk for hours and hours up and down the embankment from Blackfriars to Chelsea. He knew only her first name, Louise. She was French and on a visit to England. She was 15, just a year older than Stanley. Beneath Big Ben, as the clock struck 11, she had said she must go. Stanley had wanted that they should correspond and meet again, but she had said no. It was better their evening together should be unique. <laughs> that they should know nothing further of each other, in the past or in the future. That they should retain only a single memory of an evening when they were young. So they had kissed very quickly on Westminster Bridge and walked off in different directions as fast as they could without turning round. That, said Stanley, was why he had failed to arrive at the cafe and that was the explanation of his poem. <laughs> the encounter was placed in a special category. It was put at David's disposal as though he too had been present and they often referred to it when discussing girls. Like Louise, for instance. <laughs> One of them would say to illustrate a point. Yes, for example, like, like Louise. Louise. So that's, uh, that's Rain on the Glorious. Pavements by Glorious. Roland Campton. Glorious. That is a lovely little book. So that is in print, everybody. You don't have to go uh, scouting or scalping for a copy. Rain on the Pavements. John, what have you been reading this week? Well, uh, sort of a classic. I just was reading it because I, I had got to the point where I was so despairing of spring. And I've had Edward Thomas's In Pursuit of Spring next to my bed for about a year. So I picked it up when it was still cold, <laughs> when everything was, was not looking good. Yeah, two days ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, not that, not that long ago. And, um, and read it. And it, it's a classic. It, it, it is a road trip on bicycle uh, made by Edward Thomas from London, the London suburbs, uh, Easter 1913, leaves London and ends up going all the way down across the Quantocks and the Exmoor and down onto the Somerset coast. It's an important book because at this point he's 35, known as a literary critic, hasn't published much poetry, 
you cannot read this book without the shadow of the First World War hanging over it. Thomas obviously famously killed in 1917. But between 1913, when he writes this book, and this is an explosion of creativity, it's a great journey book. I mean, if you like traveling by bicycle, if you want to know what what the state of, of rural England and suburban England, that, that's sort of more almost why I read it, because I'm kind of intrigued by his riding through the sort of streets of South London. It's exquisitely done. He writes, he writes beautifully, obviously, about landscape, about, about weather. He's, he's steeped in John Clare, in, in Hardy, in the literature of the countryside. He's, a, he's known as a country writer. But you can begin to feel a kind of a darkness and a, and a strangeness creeping into the narrative which prefigures the, the poetry that is, is to sort of explode over the next couple of years. The book is in, in, inevitably published by the wonderful Little Toller who bring these books to, to mm-hmm. public attention. They have done a, an amazingly beautiful thing. They have put in Edward Thomas's own photographs in the book, which he had a, a sort of little, a little camera that he had. Uh, and it is it's sort of, it, it is pre-lapsarian, but the, the, there is, it's also... There's weird, you know, the, the storm clouds in the culture that it feels doomed. The journey has a sense mm. of doom. Anyway, here we go. Inside a, a bird shop, linnets at half a crown were rushing ceaselessly against the bars of six-inch cages, their bosoms ruffled and bloody as if from the strife, themselves like wild hearts beating in breasts too narrow. House-malted goldfinches, price five shillings and sixpence, were making sounds which I should have recognised as the twittering of goldfinches had I heard them among thistles on the down tops. Little, bright foreign birds that have been hardly more at home here than there, looking more contented. A goldfish, six inches long, squirmed about a globe with a diameter of six inches in the most complete exile imaginable. The birds at least breathed air, not parted entirely from the southwest wind which was now soaking the street. But the fish was in a living grave. The place was perhaps more cheerless to look at than to live in. But a short time, three more persons took shelter by it, and after glancing at the birds, stood looking out at the rain, at the dull street, the tobacconists, newsagents and confectioners' shops alone being unshuttered. Presently, one of the three shelterers entered the bird shop, which I had supposed shut. The proprietor came out for a chaffinch, and in a minute or two the customer left with an uncomfortable air and something fluttering in a paper bag such as would hold a penneth of sweets. He mounted a bicycle and I after him, for the rain had forgotten also. Not far up the road, he was apparently unable to bear the fluttering in the paper bag any longer. He got down, and with an awkward air, as if he knew how many great men had done it before, released the flutterer. A dingy cock chaffinch flew off among the lilacs of a garden, saying, Chink! The deliverer was up and away again. Yeah, just sort of mm. book is full of these strange little odd moments. I mean, who knew that you could buy chaffinches you know, really and does. put them in paper bags? That, that, um, that idea of the, the gentleman's bicycle tour in the... That really reminds me of... I think it was a play for today. Or it's a film in the early 70s by Alan Bennett called A Day Out. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Directed by Stephen Frears. It's one of the first things that Stephen Frears directed himself. And it's exactly that. It's a gentleman's bicycle club. Take a tour round the, I'm going to say, the Yorkshire countryside in the summer of 1913. Mm. It's fascinating, that, isn't it? It's very subtly done. There's no heavy-handed moment of saying, and then this would all be swept away. 
and yet you feel underpinning it all is the idea that, that yeah. this is the end of sort of blood, uh, and, yeah. and kind of blood sacrifice on the on the kind mm. of horizon it's 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 a it's i mean it's if you like books about the english countryside it's a absolute classic well it's main event time isn't all it right. drum yeah. rolls drum rolls now it's commercials <laughs> We've already shown our hands. We hadn't heard of this book. John and I were both blown away by it. Uh, I Personally, I think this is one of the great discoveries of doing Backlisted for me. You know, a lot of the time we'll do a book where you think, I've sort of heard of the book or I might have heard of the author or this one. I, I, <laughs> absolutely no trace. I hold my hand up and no trace. of it. Where did you first come across Gail Jones or this novel? Well, at both at the same time, I came across this novel and Gail Jones at the same time as you did. And I'm actually really happy to say, um, in defense of education, as a as mm. a now a university professor, I encountered this book in graduate school. And I was taking a course in African-American literature and I was in my mid-20s and I had never heard of her or encountered this novel. And a very wonderful professor called Wanima Lubiano, who is still teaching and is still a genius. And she put this book on the reading list and we were all blown away as well. And I've been teaching it ever since. That was probably well, 1994. I moved to England in 1999 and I've and I taught it for a good 15 years here. So some of your listeners might be my former students and they'll know <laughs> it because of that. But so, you know, it is sometimes it is as simple as that. That's so we, we hear a lot about how the canon is bad and how the canon is exclusionary and how the canon is. Mm -hmm. But actually, part of what the canon can do is in a very simple level is for a teacher to say, this is a book I'm passionate about. And I want to share this with 20 young people and see if they're passionate about it, too. And I've been doing that with this book forever. And I realized when John and I were talking a little while ago that I was remiss in not having brought this book to your attention sooner, frankly. Because <laughs> it is. I did feel sort of like, what was I thinking? I've been teaching this book forever. And it is an absolutely extraordinary novel. And as John said, it's a novel that Toni Morrison was very actively involved in bringing to light. So there's, a, there's a, an incredibly... Uh, rich and complex and she, history. And she famously said that no novel about any black woman could ever be the same after after yeah. Corrigidora. And, and, you know, and I feel very strongly, and I, I, I think Toni Morrison is a very great writer, and I'm not taking anything away from her when I say this, but when you read Corrigidora, you see the ghosts of Beloved, if you I, know Beloved well. I utterly I agree mean, with you. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. That she's well, standing on the not, shoulder of a giant. We're and, not and saying Toni Morrison rips, rips, rips Not at all, no not way. at all. She's but, standing on the shoulder of a giant, but nobody gives credit to the giant. I mean, I don't think I've read a first novel as accomplished as this. It's extraordinary. Isn't I it? mean, you know, Dubliners maybe, you know, it, mm. which isn't really a novel, but I mean, it, it comes out of nowhere. For me, it came out of nowhere. And I have read various books about that have described themselves as, I mean, we should say that the, the book is a first person mm. narrative. Yeah, but let's do the blurb. Yeah. Let's do okay, the blurb. So the blurb well, I've been, I've got, I'm going to judge the blurb. Okay, so I've got, that's good. <laughs> you got to do it. It's a difficult book to blurb. There isn't a blurb on this one, really. Well, so, the, so the Beacon Press edition is all quotes. Yeah. Uh, and they're great quotes. They're amazing quotes. We'll read some of them in a minute. But here we've got um, Nikki brilliantly mm. sourced a Camden Press edition from 30 years ago. This is the only which, time this book's ever been published. Which in I think country. was the last time it was in print in the UK. So it's from 1975, we should say, if yeah. we haven't said that. Yeah, yet. and this edition comes from the late 80s. It was published by the Camden Press, which was based in Camden Passage, which is about five minutes' walk from where <laughs> we are now. Don't look for it. It's not there anymore. Uh, and so this is what it says on the back of this edition, Corrigidora. 
by Gail Jones. Blues singer Ursa is consumed by her hatred of Corregidora, the 19th century slave master who fathered both her grandmother and mother. Charged with, quote, making generations to bear witness to the abuse embodied in the family name, Ursa Corregidora finds herself unable to keep alive this legacy when she is made sterile in a violent fight with her husband. It, it's not a comedy. Um, <laughs> haunted by the ghosts of a Brazilian plantation, pained by a present of lovelessness and despair, Ursa slowly and firmly strikes her own terms with womanhood. Oh, that's a pretty fair description. It's a difficult novel to encapsulate, uh, and I'll give that a very strong A-. minus. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. So the, one of the things that this book is about, there's all sorts of things, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but one of the things that this book is about is the blues. Yeah. And we, we have no audio of Gail Jones, but we do have, I chose a couple of bits of audio that Fantastic. we could dot in because they felt appropriate. Have and we got Nina Simone singing Trouble in Mind? We, because We have got some Nina coming up. There's a little bit near the end of the book here. Where, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. where <laughs> it's Ursa marvelous. is in a bar in 1969. It's the bar where she works. And she's in her she's late singing. 40s. She's late 40s. And a guy comes into the bar and he says he's just got a first job singing over at the Drake Hotel. Oh, yeah, he's an older great. guy. And uh, he says, I'm 58 years old. You know, I don't like that word, discovery. Ray Charles is a genius. You know that? But let me tell you something. and I don't have to spell it out for you because you know what I'm talking about. Sinatra was the first one to call Ray Charles a genius. He spoke of the genius of Ray Charles, and after that, everybody called him a genius. They didn't call him a genius before that, though. He was a genius, but they didn't call him that. You know what I'm trying to tell you? If a white man hadn't told them, they wouldn't have seen it. And then he goes on to say, you know, the only other time I felt good was when I was in the Apollo Theatre. That was a long time ago, because I ain't been back to New York in a long time. But the lady was singing. Billie Holiday. She sang for two solid hours, and then when she finished, there was a full minute of silence, just silence, and then there was applauding and crying, and she came out and was nervous for a full 32 seconds, and then she sang. And you saw what they'd done to her, don't you? I said, yes. So the novel is about the blues, but there's also, it seems to me, in her writing, in who she is, in who she's trying to give voice to, the novel is the blues, yeah, right? In the, in the rhythms of it and, and what it's trying to express, right? Absolutely. So I have, as I said, I've taught this novel for many years now, and I teach it as a blues narrative. And that's a kind of metaphor that people like to throw around. And they say, oh, this book is very bluesy or it's very jazzy. And, and this is a book that stands up to that. Um, it is structured around the blues. It's even structured around women's blues, not mm. even men's blues. Yeah, yeah. So whereas men's blues is I got to hit the road, I you know, I got to hit a freight train because I've got the blues in this town and this woman wants to hold me down and she's the old ball and chain. This is women's blues, which is I'm stuck here. I got trouble in mind. I need to get my rocking chair. And one of the things that Gail Jones does is she is she layers lines from classic blues songs all the way through Ursa's narrative because Ursa what we haven't said yet is that the novel takes place over 20 years, give or take, about 1948 to 1969. And it is all in Ursa's head. It's her memory. It's her reconstruction. Some of it's in real time, but you're not really sure. It might be memory. It might be reconstruction. And 
it but she's a blues singer so her dreams her dreams dreams, her but her love of the blues inflects how she sees the world and it's the language that she understands the world through and so the words and the lines of great blues songs make their way into Mm -hmm. the novel which Mm -hmm. is an obvious way in which the blues structure the novel but also Gail Jones chooses in some of those memory and dream sequences you're not sure is it memory probably a dream Um, but this kind of unconscious internal monologue where she is reliving a trauma. And the trauma, as you said at the beginning, is that her husband threw her down, who she loves very much, um, and she really never gets over the loss Mm. of their relationship, um, that he threw her down the stairs and she was rendered sterile. After that, she had had to have a forced hysterectomy. And she's trying to come to terms with this family legacy that says you have to make generations. You have to bear children to bear witness. And I should say, her name is Ursa, and that's a very, very specifically chosen name. Ursa, of course, the word that means bear. bear yeah. She is there to bear witness, to bear generations, and the novel is about what is it, what's the difference between bearing witness as an artist, as a singer, as a speaker, and bearing witnesses as a woman forced <laughs> yeah. to bear children. Mm. And all of the pressure of the book hinges on this idea of bearing bearing the pressure, bearing the burden, bearing all of that stuff. So she sets up these amazingly metaphorical patterns that detonate through the book. And then these blue structures that you're also registering. So there's, if I may, there's a remarkable moment about midway through the book where she is remembering a, well, remembering, imagining, she might be doing that Esprit de Scalier thing in her head of imagining a fight with her husband that she wishes she had had. Yeah, it's uh, never clear that those, those those passages with Mark, whether they memories well, you, or dreams. You were or, saying that, Nikki, weren't you? You were saying that you, you, you've been reading the book. I think I found it quite hard to be certain who I was listening to or, or what was happening at various points, yeah, right? Yeah, sometimes I was reading it thinking... Did that just happen? Yeah. I had to kind of rewind a bit. Absolutely. I wasn't always sure. But I think it's deliberately destabilizing, right? That's what she's trying to do is to say this is part of what trauma feels like. I think we have to say there is not one syllable in this book that hasn't been thought through, Mm. worked over. This is as as artfully constructed and not a novel as I've ever read. It's the most patterned book I am aware of. But again, the patterns, as I said earlier, they detonate, right? The patterns... They, they, they create this kind of propulsive motion and suddenly all of this meaning starts to just charge through and it all just explodes. Like any, and genuinely, I mean, music is used as a crappy metaphor. Yeah, quite but, that's often, what this is, but this, this is, is the real, real thing. Exactly. And so I, this is a long passage, so I'll just read a bit of it and then we'll, we'll decide where to stop. There are italic passages that are clearly not real time. They're either memory imagined, reconstructed, some version thereof. But this is some kind of internal dialogue that Ursa is playing out between her and the husband who she can't get over. And it's at some point as she's trying to work through the trauma of having lost her ability to have children with him. And it's clearly meant to be his voice that begins this dialogue. So he says, Ursa, have you lost the blues? Nah, the blues is something you can't lose. Give me a feel, just a little feel. You had your feel. And we should say, it's a very sexual book. Mm. Unbelievable. It's a very explicitly sexual book. Um, So when he says, give me a feel, just a little feel, that it becomes clear in this context is very, very sexual. Give me a feel, just a little feel. You had your feel. Are you lonely? Yes. Do you still fight the night? Yes. Lonely blues. Don't you care if you see me again? Nah, I don't care. Don't you want your original man? 
and I, I'll, this is the last time I'll stop and then I'll let the rhythm build. But it's important here to say also for people who haven't, who haven't encountered it yet, this notion of Corregidora, the slave owner, he's the original man as well. And one of the great political fights in the novel is about the fact that she wouldn't take Mutt's name even in 1948. And he says, are you mine or theirs? And part of the novel is about a woman saying, I'm neither one of yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's about yeah. escaping patriarchy, right? I'm neither one. So when he says, don't you want your original man, there's a real valence by this point in the novel that because, it means, I mean, we got is to it him or is it Corregidora? You, you've got to restate that Corregidora fathered, I mean, the incest with the, with yeah. the, with, so it, the whole. And he, and he whored out both her grandmother and her great-grandmother. So he not only fathered them, but he whored money, them out and also for money and pimped them out. And so did his wife. And created this, this tension because the generation are lighter skinned yeah. and therefore they're rejected by their own community as yeah. well so it's, it's so one of the things that the novel exposes and this is again something I talk about when I teach the novel is that institutional American slavery and this is actually about uh, South American slavery but uh, slavery in the Americas I should say the way in which institutionalized slavery uh, um, incentivized rape is something mm. that our history does not take seriously and yet if you're if people are capital then raping women gives you more capital. That's what Toni Morrison meant when she said you can't, you'll not be able to write a, a novel exactly. about a black woman and in the, the same way. About, and the book, this is the, for me the genius, the tension in the novel which drives the novel forward is the tension between how do you bear witness, and but how do you escape? How do you escape it? And that's exactly mm. what the whole novel is about. Because as Mutt keeps telling her, as her memories of Mutt keep Onions telling her, peppermint. that's a that's a slave breeder's way of thinking. You got to bear children. That's a slave breeder's way of thinking. So how does she, it's a catch twenty two? How yeah. does she escape yeah, it? Yeah. She's got to bear witness to the trauma that happened to her ancestors, but she also has to not be turned into a baby farm. And how does she escape that? And it's through the blues. And that's why this becomes so important. So when he says, "Don't you want your original man?" By this point, about halfway through the novel, that's already built up a lot of tension where it's not clear whether the original man is Corregidora, her great-grandfather who she never met, or Mutt, her husband, or what is the original man? And it's Mm. got all that bluesy inflection of original man. Mm -hmm. Um, So he says, He's my man. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. And what I, so now, because I promised not to intercede again. Um, I'm now suddenly becoming aware that I must be a terrible teacher because I interrupt this stuff all the time. Um, (laughs) So what I want you to hear is how how often now in the dialogue that follows, all she can do is say no. And I think that's part of the blues dialogue in the way that this plays out too. So he asks the question and then she says no and then it plays out. Okay, so he says, don't you want your original man? Nah, I, I know what he did to your voice, what you did. Still, they can't take it away from you, but ain't nothing better for the blues than a good. Don't mutt. Come over here, honey. Nah. I need somebody. Nah. I said I need somebody. Nah. I won't treat you bad. Nah. I won't make you sad. Nah. Come over here, honey, and visit with me a little. Nah. Come over here, baby, and visit with me a little. Nah. You got to come back to your original man. Nah. What you did. Just give me a little feel. You lonely, ain't you? I've been there already. Then you know what I need. Put me in the alley, Urs. Something wrong with me down there. I still want to get in your alley, baby. Nah, mutt. What are you looking for anyway, woman? What we stopped being to each other. I never knew what we was. Something you gave me once but stopped giving me. I want to fuck you. That ain't what I mean. I still want to fuck you. <laughs> what you stopped giving me. I still want to fuck you. Nah. What he stopped giving you too? Yes. What you need? Yes. What you wanted from me? Yes. 
What you want from anybody? Nah. I still want to fuck you. Yes, fuck me. Let me get behind you. Nah. Sit on my lap then. Nah, I don't want it that way then. Fuck you. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Right? Uh, and the thing I want to, there are two things I want to bring out of that, that passage, which I think is extraordinary. One is that it is a call and response blues structure, which is the, the, the blues structure is, you know, I want to go down to the river. I feel so bad. I want to go down the river. I feel so sad. I want to go down to the river and take my rocking chair and rock my blues away. So the way they describe it in musical terms is, you know, A, A with a variation and then B. And that's what she's doing here. I won't treat you bad. I won't make you sad. The very simple rhythms and rhymes that are coming through yeah, this. But yeah. for her to tell a story about sexual power and sexual politics yeah. and to tell the truth about it, which is that it's partly about withholding. And without you in any sense becoming annoyed. I mean, the dialogue in this book is as good, again, as any I've ever... I mean, you know, you'd think with all that patterning that it would start to become a little annoying Stilted or, or yeah, you know, sort of affected. But it, it's, it's, it, it, you have, you, you I, I realized it's a short book. It shouldn't take long to read, but actually you kind of have to read it in that rhythmic way. Mm-hmm. You can't just skip forwards and sort of get on with the narrative because oh. then everything is in it's poetry. Everything is, everything oh, is in that oh, language. Oh, oh. I would like to say that my observation about this book, which I haven't seen, um, someone talk about Sarah but you may have a view on this so I read this and I I'd seen that it would have been edited by Tony Morrison and as soon as you know that he sort of there's a certain literary I love Tony Morrison but there's a certain lit kind of literary fiction I think I understand what it was going to be right and then I looked at her biography and we'll talk a bit about her biography but she was born in 1949 so when she publishes this novel... She was 26. She's 26, <laughs> and from as we understand it, she was writing it from late teenage mm-hmm. into early 20s, that she had been working on this and Eva's Man, the book that follows it, and her short stories and in this kind of um, outpouring mm-hmm. of precocious brilliance. Mm. She was top A student. So, so yeah. she is... She was a graduate, but, but, she was a postgraduate student when she brought this to what I, what I think about this is that it's a coming together of, and what I loved about it, right, is it's almost, it's the blues, but it's the, it's the, it's the electric blues. It's Absolutely. a young person's well put, blues, right? Yeah. It's, it's a young, someone who doesn't know what they're doing yeah. or doesn't know how not to do it. And is too brave, is too bold, and so just goes for it. The the ambition of attempting to do what you were just talking about, yoking the blues with the historic the historical nature of female black identity in America. So that's a crazy project that only so and but also not somebody young, but somebody who had who was growing up in America, was a late teenager in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. So this this is like a really angry book. It's Watts, it's Black Power, it's, it's, you know, it's coming out of a very specific historical moment by a young person who is channeling this thing that they don't, so fascinating about it, over which they have control, 
but at the same time is the product of absolutely of but intuition. I think there's another really important context to put in there with which I think now too many people forget, which is the degree to which the the black power movement of the 60s, at least by the late 60s, was explicitly misogynistic. So what Gail Jones does in 1975 is even more extraordinary to say within, you know, less than 10 years after Martin Luther King's assassination, less than 10 years after um, uh, Malcolm X's assassination, to say there is a story here about black women that has been, and black women's relationship to power through sexuality that has been completely overlooked. And this is her answer to the idea that rape is an insurrectionary act. And, and it is angry as and, hell. And it, it is. And the great line that echoes through the book, everything said in the beginning must be said better than in the beginning. Yeah. And this, is, this book is an attempt to say that better. It comes out of oral tradition. It comes out, she said, the story of Corrigidora comes out of listening to her parents' conversations. In Kentucky. In, in segregated Kentucky in the 40s. Yeah. In the, so it comes out of the oral tradition. When she talks about this book, she actually later on in, in, in her career, she, she slightly disparaged. She, she feels that she that the, 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 the black char- male characters were all too negative. Mm. When she writes about it, she said, I didn't do much thinking about them. I just wrote them down. And you think for a 26-year-old, I mean, it's, it, pre- precocious doesn't come into yeah, it. She said, she, there's this report of her saying that she, when she was at school, She's thirteen or something, and she had this precocious talent. And they say they, a teacher said to her, "Well, who? What kind of writers do you want to write like?" And she said, "I want to write like Henry James." Henry James. Yeah, I, I know. And yet and you she understand did. what and she, she wrote. Means. A James, she, right? she wrote a James in story, story in Paris about a Paris emigre. When she took, she, she, you know, she, she. I mean, she read. She fluent in Spanish, so she became. You know, she. I mean, proper A student. She did took a course in Chaucer because she was really interested in the orality of Chaucer. You know, of, of tales and unreliable narratives. This is a book that's profoundly interested in what words can do, which is why I think that people who love language and love patterns in literature respond to this book. And the musicality of it isn't just the structure of it, but it's understanding the way you can riff on words, the way you can riff on a melody or you can riff on a tune. Although we've disputed how to pronounce Corregidora, we have not really disputed, but but we haven't actually talked about what it means. And um, not as a Portuguese speaker, and I'm sure you've got listeners who will uh, correct us, but I'm go- I use that word advisedly because corregidora does share the Latin root with correct, and it does come from mm. correction, corrector. She riffs on the idea of correction, of rules, of magistrates, of what it means to be able to, to liberate yourself from the rules all the way through this. So although we don't know how to say Corregidora, the concept of it mm. structures the whole book. But also the idea that there, there is, is there or isn't there a kind of sisterhood within the book? It seems to me that, that, that you know... Well, there's a sisterhood that the, the, that's the, limited by homophobia, which is right. something we should talk about. Yeah. Because it is a novel of its time, and I'm not saying that as an excuse, but it, no, is, no, no, sure. it is very much of its time. And she, we're saying that she's ahead of her time in many, many ways, but there are a couple of ways in which she's quite clearly not ahead of her time. And uh, at least as I read the novel, you might disagree with me, but um, there is a very strong anti-lesbian attitude that the character has. Now, we might, we might conclude that the yeah. novel is criticizing Ursa for her limitations, um, but one, so after her trauma with Mutt, she's taken in by a, a, a couple of carers and she kind of uh, kind of ricochets back and forth between a man named Tadpole, who she eventually marries, and a woman called Cat. Cat <laughs> is bisexual. 
remembering. And she that, don't like it. And she don't like it at all. She get evil. <laughs> she says, I, I about got evil when I found that out. But what, again, it's important to remember that, as you already said, the bulk of the novel takes place in 1948. So, And there is the amazing scene where she meets the girl again when they're grown yeah, up. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is, is so uh, glorious about the book is there, it's five, five sections of very different lengths, but it, it has a kind of a... And at the, fi- the end section, the language, the early language is so... It's so dense and clotted and, mm. and it's it half-dreamed. Mm. And then by the time we get to the, the 60s... We know exactly what she's, she's a confident woman. She's living on her own and she sees the girl who she's had... Basically, the girl sneaks into bed with her and, and, feels, and her feel, feels her breasts. And she's like a 15-year-old girl and she, gets, she throws her out of the bed. She says it punched her to the floor. Yeah. She's 26 and, and she punches her to the floor. And it's a kind of... Uh, and, it, and the thing is that... But I love that they have this sort of exchange and then they don't talk to each other again. And the, For 20 years. The, the subtlety of the, that meeting again and the way that the way that it's written, it's a character. So you feel that by the end of the book, she's less judgmental about that behaviour because mm. she's learnt a lot more I as would, a character. I would say, Sarah, I was thinking about when you said that, you know, it had not occurred to me that that was authorial homophobia. Yeah. No. It's, a, it's an open question. Yeah. Very For much me, so. I, 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 I feel... Authorial homophobia, there is stuff that we perhaps ought to talk about. That seemed to me that the damage that the character has sustained Absolutely. by that point in the book already, right? It's gone, so, yeah. Right, and by extension, the damage that has been handed down from generation to generation, it's not a, a, a specific kind of homophobic mistrust. It's a, a blanket mistrust, well, right? Well, you can even make the case that in 1975, for her to bring in the question of black gay desire is among a, women is already is a, a radical pretty, choice. Yeah. Okay. And to not be you know, completely punitive about it. One of the debates that the book enters into very actively, which was a very active debate among feminists in the 1970s, was this the, the Freudian idea that vaginal orgasms were somehow superior to clitoral orgasms, and that that got reactivated in the 70s as a kind of backlash to feminism. Yeah. And she's yeah. very actively engaging in that and making it very clear that she thinks clitoral orgasms are good. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I think is very feminist about this yeah, book. Yeah. She, she, she's, I mean, she's interested in pleasure. It's the question of where do women get pleasure and what's the line mm. Between pleasure and pain, and something she comes back to very explicitly all the way through it. So, a, a bit of biographical stuff. I mean, one of the things that is that, that a lot of people who write about this book say who know and mm. knew Gail Jones is that they find it almost impossible. You know, because she was they think she was, she was a virgin. She was so virginal and and that's scholarly. What, that's what I mean. That's and it's, kind of it's, what it's, I was talking about. And, and it's the, kind of the, the thing. How does she know all this stuff about sexuality? Is is it imagination? Is it yeah. is it coming out of her family history? And you, that that sense of her her sublimating everything into art, sublimating mm. everything into into in the way that a blues singer turns Absolutely. pain well, I've into. A, I've yeah. got a quote. For like the, a crucible. Her brain yeah. was like a crucible. From an interview, this is an interview that was that took place in 1978. She was speaking to somebody called Claudia Tate. And I, I think her description of herself here is, I mean, you tell me what you think. She says, I think of myself principally as a storyteller. Most of the fictions that I write that seem to come across, that seem to work, have been those in which I'm concerned with the storyteller. Not only the author as storyteller, but the characters as storytellers. Those who are very conscious of speaking either to a particular person or to a particular people. I think there's also that sense of the hearer as well as the teller in terms of my organising and selecting events and situations. 
At the time I was writing the novels, I was particularly interested and continue to be interested in oral traditions of storytelling, Afro-American and others, where there is always that consciousness and importance of the hearer, even in the interior monologue where the storyteller becomes the hearer. That consciousness or self-consciousness is important in terms of the selection of significant events. It's, in other words... It's in keeping with the blues. It's performance. Yeah, absolutely. It's all performative. Right. It's it's a performed. Can I can, can I can I just interject very quickly because you said somebody called Claudia Tate, and I feel the need to to do a, a tribute shout out. Claudia Tate was a professor of mine at Princeton who was part of the generation that introduced me to Gail Jones. She wasn't the particular teacher who did, but she was part of that generation yeah. who did, and she died prematurely. <laughs> so I would like yeah. to just do a hat tip to Claudia Tate, who was one of the generation of black women who brought these books to people like us. Thank God you are here to put me so, straight. So, no, so, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't so, mean no, that no, as no, correction I mean, at all. No, no, yeah, yeah. Major, I feel major elephant in the room here. Here is a, I would say, stone cold classic of 20th century literature you know um it ought to be read and known alongside the color purple and beloved it's i mean with all due respect to color purple it's in a different fucking class sorry i'm not allowed to swear am i let me do that again i could not i could not agree more but what 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 happened this is a book that comes with enconiums from John Updike, from Maya Angelou. James Baldwin. James Baldwin says, Corregidor is the most brutally honest and painful revelation of what has occurred and is occurring in the souls of black men and women. And uh, Daryl Pinckney, this is, this is an important novel that is not in print in the UK and nobody knows who Gail Jones had. What happened? Maybe we should say a little bit about the biography just, just to... Well, okay, so Gail, so Gail Jones, she's born, as we said, in 1949, and she excelled at English. She went to, she, she was part of a graduate program at Creative Writing at well, Brown, Brown University. Inter- yeah. Can I interject yeah, and just please. say before then that her mother insisted that she not go to the black school yeah. in Lexington, Kentucky, that she went to the white school. So she was one and, of the earlier. And Elizabeth Hardwick, Robert Lowell, writer and wife Robert Lowell was a was a was a pupil and, and she was an early mentor of Gail Jones. Yeah. Which is yeah, right. I'm 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 massively condensing what happens. Yeah, it's a very dramatic. I want, life. Yeah, and if you want to read about this, you can do so online. But basically, what happens to her is she has a tremendously successful uh, mid to late seventies when she is discovered by in her twenties uh, in her late twenties when she is discovered by Toni Morrison. Who so was an the, editor and not a writer at that point, right. we should say. So when the novel is published, it, as you say, John, it, 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 it garners a lot of praise. And then um, art predicting life. <laughs> she falls in with a, a, a guy called Bob Higgins. And Bob Higgins turns out to not be great for her life. And um, she would disagree, but she would disagree. And she is still alive. If she's listening, we love your work and we try why we're staying off this. But suffice to say, Bob Higgins dies under very unhappy circumstances in the late 1990s. She has just emerged at that point after 20 years silence with a novel called The Healing, Healing, which gets on the National Book Award shortlist. So she's poised to make this big return this with comeback. a novel called The Short. She has another novel out called Mosquito. You know, we should say these the first two novels we've been talking about are short. These later novels are much longer. She's been and then these terrible tragedies happen in her private life. That means she becomes a She's been a recluse, recluse for twenty years. 
Yeah. And she may well be writing. She may well Or be. she may not. No, she won't in, give interviews. She, she was publicity shy even in the 70s. She preferred not to talk about her work, read from her work. And so we don't and, know. And maybe there's one other detail worth adding there, which is that her relationship with Toni Morrison, her professional relationship with Toni Morrison fell apart over this personal relationship with her husband. So Toni Morrison exited that professional relationship um, when the husband became, from Toni Morrison's point of view, controlling. But the one of the, the running themes in the novel is that after Ursa has her traumatic experience and has this forced hysterectomy and she can't have children anymore, which has been so central to her identity, people say to her that she was always a beautiful blues singer, but they say that now there's yeah. a strain yeah, to her voice, voice. Yeah, yeah. and a deepness to her voice yeah, yeah. and an edge to her voice that didn't used to be there. And in the beginning, the, the novel begins, as we've said, with that point of trauma. In the beginning, she doesn't like that, but by the end, she's come to terms with that and she recognizes that it's deepened her art and it's and, and it's and she's art. relaxed. I don't mean about that the, the, the last the last thing that the, the first person narrative. She's suddenly she's gained confidence and, and and relaxed. So there, there, look, there are two things to say. I mean, I'm sure that we cannot go on for. I could do this for. I have <laughs> do, I have taught this novel at three hours and more, so we could clearly go on at, at, at length. There are two things I would bring up before we finish. Um, I'm going to go in reverse order. One is the ending, and it's one of the most extraordinary endings of any novel anywhere that I'm aware of. Possibly my, the greatest last page I in, mean, a, in any novel. I mean, it's an oh. absolute... We won't say more than that, but let's just put that out there. I finished it. <laughs> so we will not give anything away. All we will say is that it is absolutely extraordinary ending. In literary studies, we like to talk about something called an open ending versus a closed ending, which is to say Dickens likes a closed ending where everybody knows where they are and everybody knows what the meaning is and everybody knows what the value is and everybody knows where everybody stands. And this is a very open ending. <laughs> it is not clear uh, where we are, but it's extraordinary. So I'll just say that. And then the other thing that I think is that I that I feel with all of the ways in which we've ranged across the brilliance of this book. One of the things that comes through the story in Ursa's memories and in these interior monologues that she has is actually the story of her mother, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother. Her grandmother and great-grandmother were both in slavery, and as we've said, they were both the children of Corregidora and the children of incest. Her mother was not, oh no, her mother was, but her mother then marries somebody else. So Ursa's the first one who breaks that chain and is not a child of incest. And she learns gradually over the course of the 20-year history of the novel the sexual history of each of those mm. ancestors as well, which are incredibly important. So you get a legacy of slavery through the whole story, which mm. we've suggested, I'm just worried that we've given the impression that the legacy of slavery is a background, no. but it's very central to the story that Ursa is thinking about. And, and in fact, on making slavery, pages. making the legacy of slavery, the daily pain of a, of yeah. a contemporary character's life yeah. is what makes it one of the most, that's well, what so, made it such a revolutionary and, and novel. That, and that women were equally culpable. So yeah. it's very much, yeah. about how yeah, yeah. Corregidora's wife was also Do you abusing love, women. You hated him, but you... There was, but where was the love and the hate? Where was the yeah. pleasure and the pain? It's yeah. a book about false binaries, right? That she's yeah. constantly two humps given on either the, or. Two humps on the same camel, yeah. yes. Hate and desire both riding well, them. You know what yeah. John was yeah. saying? You know, John was saying earlier about, about, you know, why is this not better known? It's difficult. Yeah, but also if this were published now, the historical moment we have the misfortune to be living through, <laughs> which you have written about, Sarah... Uh, but also, you know, so many issues that are live issues in America and in this country at the moment. Why is this book not? 
if this book were published now, it would feel entirely relevant, entirely important, and new. It would feel like a new way of talking about I mean, these you subjects. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think anybody, anybody who's, who, who's uh, as we all have, loved Colson Whitehead's The Underground mm. Railroad. I felt um, that jazz, yeah, absolutely. Tony Morrison's jazz, jazz yeah. could not exist without Most this book. Most of Tony Morrison doesn't and, exist and, without and, this book. And, and is a, jazz is almost like a conversation. There's, yes. uh, well, here's Gail Jones's blues book. I'm going to find a way of writing around the blues with jazz. It's you know? as if Gail Jones gave Tony Morrison everything she needed to have her conversation and as if she's been writing to Gail Jones ever since. Mm. And, and when you only read Toni Morrison in isolation, you don't understand the other half of the conversation. Mm, mm. And this novel, even alone, even if you don't read Eva's Man, this novel tells you the other half of the conversation. Mm. And it's 15 years earlier. And she was 26. And I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, for heaven's sake, <laughs> it is a novel that was so ahead of its time that it has finally found its time. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> we have to end. But we want to say, I think we want to, we, there's something that we would love to do. We, we've, um, Andy, do you want to say? Yeah, well, okay. So we were, so John and I were reading this, Sarah, and we were thinking. For some time I, now. I, I read it. Well, we've been thinking about, you know, it would be so nice to take one of these books and see if we can find a way to bring it to people. Mm. Because, you know, often the books are, are great when they're out of print and there are reasons why they're out of print. But I finish this and I sent a, I emailed John and said you know what I don't know if you read this yet but I really think this is a this book deserves to be out again if only we had some mechanism <laughs> that we could access that could book books before people because this book seriously but seriously I, I, I don't want people to think I don't want people to think what I don't want people to think is that we this spotted is... the book and then we're trying to push it out there well you're not we... doing it with every book this book is extraordinary well I, I... no well no 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 exactly no, what, we are, I, I we, want to we, make we, the we, point that I, that I don't feel moved often yeah. to right. say, you know what, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get this... This book needs to be read. It should be That's on curriculums need, with, yeah, yeah. with As I Lie Down. As I Lie Down. I mean, you know, it's absolutely. it's that... We, we come across things all the time. You think, oh, that would be, it would be nice to see that back in print. But I feel, A, at this time, mm. when what is going on, as Andy said earlier, and I think there's a whole generation of people who would connect to this book. That, that, to that, the power struggles. In, it's yeah. about power struggles. Yeah. Um, it's 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 so yeah. What what we're going to do? We're talking to Beacon Beacon Press in Amazing. America. What we would love to do is to uh, is to crowdfunding UK edition through Unbound, and we will confirm the details of that in due course. We have to to talk to the American publishers first, but we'll be we'll be coming back to it. So that's one thing we wanted to say. We also ought to say at the end of this podcast, we've got a new website which is launched today. Backlisted dot fm. It is both beautiful is okay. and useful, I think. <laughs> it has show notes for all 65 of the episodes. Does it? It does, yeah. Blimey. Including links to, to buy all the books that you uh, that wow. are discussed, all the added extra reviews and clips, and also a rapidly expanding programme of live recordings at, at festivals over Bat the summer. Batlisted comes alive. Batlisted comes alive. <laughs> uh, live at Budokan. Intensity yeah. in 10 cities. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It is the backlisted.fm. It's everything a backlisted fan has ever hoped for, and we know you'll tell us if it isn't. Andy? Yeah, so that's backlisted.fm. That is um, great. That means that apart from anything else, 
people will stop asking us if there's a list anyway, <laughs> of where all we the have, books are. We have, yes, we've taken is. the list there and made it, a list. In, we've made it into a website. FM. Uh, OK, so thank you, Sarah, for choosing this book. Thank you to our producer, Nikki Birch, to Unbound, to our crisply ironed sponsor, Spoke, and to Joe Hodgson, who has heroically listened to all the episodes and turned them into top-notch website copy. <laughs> That's why you couldn't look me in the eye, Joe. OK. <laughs> And, of course, we're still on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless, but this week you have only two jobs. Visit backlisted.fm, let us know what you think, and visit unbound.com, I hope, and pledge, pledge, pledge for Gail Jones. Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.